A man's out for a walk and he walks up uh, across a bridge and he sees another man standing at the edge of the bridge sort of looking out over into the water. The first man walks up to him and he strikes up a conversation with him. In the midst of the conversation, he says to the man, so what religion are you? Are you Christian, Hindu, Jewish? What are you? The man replies, well, I'm a Christian. Really, me too. Are you Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox? The man replies, well, I'm Protestant. Oh yeah, me too. What denomination are you? The man replies, Baptist. Really? Small world, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? <laughs> Northern Baptist, me too. Northern Liberal Baptist or Northern Conservative Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? Council of 1912. The man pushes him over the edge, says, die, heretic! <laughs> now the reason we laugh uh, at a joke like that is because although it's ridiculous, it does resonate with us that too often in Christianity, it's our differences that we focus on. That instead of celebrating the things that we have in common, we allow our differences in very minute ways, sort of the difference between the Council of 1897 or 79 or 1912, to divide us. But that's not Jesus' desire for us. That's not his prayer for us, that we would be somehow identified by our differences. That's not what he wants for us. This morning we want to take some time and look at a prayer that Jesus is this very morning praying for Calvary Church. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. It's page 766 in the Bibles the church provides. There's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat if you need one to follow along. In John 17, you know, this is our last sermon in the book of John. It's been a great time together to look at the life of Christ and to look at who he is. And we spent the year sort of following the narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And this summer we've really focused on what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. This is the last night before Jesus will go to the cross. He's leaving his disciples. And as you can imagine, on your last night with a group of people who mean the world to you and really upon whom the future of the world rests, Jesus does what we would expect him to do. He spends time teaching them and going over the things that are most important that they must Remember, and then he prays for them. 
And in chapter 17, we have his prayer for his disciples. And the section we're going to look at this morning is the close of that prayer. So I want you to understand what this is. This is the very last thing that Jesus prays for his disciples. That after all his time with them, after all he's given to them, after all he's taught them, of all the things he wants for them, this is the thing he closes his prayer with. Let's look at it together. It's verses 20 through 26. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the close of Jesus' prayer on the last night with his disciples. From this moment, he will leave, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, be captured, sentenced to die, and the next day give his life on the cross. Now it's interesting that this last section of Jesus' prayer, he specifically says that he's praying not just for those 11 men who are in the upper room with him, but he is also praying for all who will believe through their message. That means Calvary Church. That means us here today. This passage is talking directly about us, that Jesus was praying this prayer for our church, that he had us in mind while he was praying this. You see, of all the things going through his mind on the night before he dies, the thing he's most thinking about is us, you and I here together this morning. And the Bible says that for the joy set before him, he was willing to endure the cross this is what he has in mind. A picture of Calvary Church, a group of people gathered together in his name. This is why he goes to the cross. This is what makes it bearable. And what he's praying, he's praying for us this morning. And what is it that Jesus so desperately prays for Calvary Church this morning? Well, in verse 21, he says, he prays that all of them may be one. He prays that we might be one. The idea here is this is a prayer about unity. Now unity is one of those words that it's hard to define, 
but you know it when you see it. So instead of trying to define unity for you, let me show you what it looks like in a church and show you what it doesn't look like. First, let's start with what unity looks like. And really, one of the best examples to use is from Acts chapter 2, the church in Jerusalem, of which it is said in describing that local church in the city of Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone in the church was filled with awe, and many miraculous signs and wonders were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. That's a unified church. That's a church that is what Jesus is praying for. They're one, they're together, they're enjoying one another's fellowship, they're sharing with one another. They're of one heart and one mind. That's the picture Jesus has in mind as he's praying in John 17. That's what unity looks like. Let me show you what unity does not look like or what disunity looks like. And the best example of this is the church in Corinth, also a first century church. Listen to what is said about them as Paul writes a letter to them. I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there might be no divisions among you and that you might be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, hey, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings as a church, they do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. That's disunity. That's a church that is not one. That's not what Jesus is praying for. The church in Corinth, they were at each other's throats. They were arguing about preferences in worship when they gathered together. When they came to the Lord's Supper, 
They came with the attitude of, it's about me and what I want to do at communion. It's how I like communion to be celebrated. They were fighting with one another about money, taking each other to court. They weren't sharing with each other. There were groups of people in the church that had sort of formed themselves into factions. And they identified themselves with this person and with that person. That's not what Jesus wants. There was quarreling, jealousy, fighting, gossiping, rumors, and they were not one. But the church in Jerusalem, they were one heart and one mind. They shared with one another. They fellowshiped with one another. And they were truly one. What Jesus is praying for Calvary Church this morning is that we might be like the church in Jerusalem, not like the church in Corinth. That we might be one. That we might be united together. Now why is this so important? Why does he make this the last thing that he prays for? Well, he tells us in verse 21 why it is so important. Second half of the verse. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Now of those two churches, the church in Corinth that we read about or the church in Jerusalem, which of those two would you rather be a part of? The church in Jerusalem. Amen. So would everyone else. That's an attractive place to be. Which of those two churches would cause you to think that Jesus really had been sent by God and died to give us new life if you weren't a believer? The church in Jerusalem. I mean, after all, who would believe in Jesus if Peter and John, two of his disciples, were constantly at each other's throats, were always bickering and stabbing each other in the back and were spreading rumors about one another and trying to win people to their side to attack the other person? Would anybody believe in Jesus? Would anybody think there was actually new life that's possible? Of course not. Jesus says, the reason I want you to be one is because the world then can see the truth that I'm from the Father, that the Father has sent me. It's interesting, this language, so that they may believe, so that the world may believe, that exact language is found really only one other time in John's Gospel. And it happens to be at the time of Jesus' greatest miracle outside of the resurrection. It's in John chapter 11, when he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. Right before he does it, Jesus stops and he prays, and he says, the reason I'm about to do this stupendous, unheard of miracle is so that they might believe. See, that's what Jesus came for. He came to do these miraculous signs. Not because he's simply a wonder worker, but so that we might see in him the truth of his claim that he has been sent by the Father. And we say to ourselves, but where are the miraculous raisings of the dead today? Jesus says, 
You want a miracle like raising Lazarus from the dead that will show the world the truthfulness of my claim? It happens when you're united. You see, only God can create a church like the church in Jerusalem. Only God can do that. Any other social group of humans that we put together is going to be known by its divisiveness, its discord, its differences, its separateness. There will be fighting. There will be selfishness. People will come to it with their own interests in mind. That's a human way of doing things. Jesus says when you see that kind of church or that kind of group, well, nobody believes in God then. But if you have a church where they're one, where they're of one mind, where they're coming to this thing not thinking what do I get out of it, but how do I serve others, thinking this is not just about me, it's about my neighbor. Well, who can do such a thing? Only God. And Jesus says, when a church is one, when it is united, then the world will know there must be a God in heaven. When someone walks into the doors of Calvary Church and they feel love and they feel warmth and they don't hear rumors and gossip and they don't find people stabbing each other in the back or groups forming and they think, what in the world is this? Jesus says they will know that there is a God in heaven and that he sent me. After all, when we look at the church in Corinth, we don't hear any talk about people coming to faith. There's no discussion in 1 Corinthians about how they're a fantastic witness in the city of Corinth. But what do we hear of the church in Jerusalem? That the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. See, this is the miracle. The miracle of John 11 the raising of Lazarus from the dead brought many people to faith. The miracle of the church in Jerusalem that here was a diverse group of people who really had nothing in common were brought together in Christ and as a result, people were coming to faith. They were saying, surely there must be a God in heaven. Look at them. That's Jesus' point. That's why unity is so important to him. That's why he prays as his last prayer. He understands that our human tendency is towards divisiveness, towards selfishness. And so he prays that we might be one so that the world will know that the Father has sent him. Now, how do you become one? How do you experience unity? Jesus seems to get us, give us four things in this passage and it just so happens that the four things that he connects to unity also happen to be a summary of everything that he just got done teaching his disciples in the upper room discourse. The first one is found in verse number 20. He's praying for those who will believe in me through their message. That one of the four things that produces unity is believing a common message. This is really tied to John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, Jesus tells us what that message is. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. That's the message. And what Jesus says, as people hear that common message, not messages, message, and believe, they'll experience unity. The first thing that produces unity is the acceptance and belief of the common message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The second way that unity is produced is in verse number 21. Jesus prays, may they also be in us. This idea of being in Christ or remaining in Christ, this is connected to John chapter 15. And the idea is, is that as we remain dependent upon Jesus and produce the fruit of good works that comes out of that dependence, we will be united. How many of you, as you sat here and listened to David share the testimony about his Uncle Bob, felt drawn to him, felt connected to him? That's what Jesus is talking about. It's not that David stood up here and said, well, you know what, Teresa and I are just fantastic niece and nephew, and we did such a great job sharing the gospel that of course he believed. What he stood up here and said was, we prayed for 35 years, and we had no hope except in Christ, and we relied completely on him, and God did something amazing. Well, when you hear that and you see the fruit of what God's doing in their life and in Bob's life, you feel unity. You feel united to them. That's what Jesus is saying is, is that as a church, when you remain dependent on me, remain in my love and produce the fruit that goes with that, it creates unity. The third way in which unity is produced is in verse number 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now that's kind of tricky language, a little bit confusing, but in the Gospel of John, what this refers to, this idea of showing glory, is the revelation of who Jesus is. And this is tied specifically to John chapter 16. And the idea that the Holy Spirit will come, and especially through the Word of God, reveal Jesus to us. And what he's saying here is, is that a church that remains committed to the preaching and the teaching and the study and the memorization of the Word of God will experience unity. That God will continue to reveal Jesus to us as the Holy Spirit takes the Word and opens it to us. The fourth way is in verse 26. Jesus said, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. This is really a reference to something that's been throughout the upper room discourse, but especially John chapter 17. And throughout the upper room discourse, Jesus has been saying, ask anything you want in my name and the Father will do it and he will be glorified. You will continue to see the Father as you pray. As you pray in my name, 
And what Jesus is saying here is, is that in his prayer, he's praying for unity, that God might be revealed. And what he's telling us is that as we continue to pray, God will continue to act. And as God continues to act, we will know him better and better, and we will be drawn closer and closer together. And Jesus says, this is what produces unity, adherence to a common message. Together, depending upon Jesus to produce the fruit of good works, remaining committed to the truthfulness of the word of God through the ministry of the Spirit, and being faithful in prayer. That as we do those things, unity is produced among us. That's what Jesus is praying. And I said at the beginning that Jesus is praying this prayer for Calvary Church this morning. After all, it's not an accident that we're in John 17 this week. It's not an accident that this is the next passage that we're to be dealing with. It's because it's too easy for any church to slip into disunity. The church at Corinth was a good church. They had lots of good things going for them. But they had allowed worldliness and quarreling and jealousy to come in their midst. And so Jesus is looking at Calvary Church this morning and saying, the world is going to try to tear you apart. But I'm praying for you right now that you might be one. He wants us to be one. Now, he's not praying for unity just for the sake of unity. This is not sort of unity at all cost. If at Calvary Church we stop preaching the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, there ought not be unity. If we abandon relying upon Jesus and producing the fruit of good works, if we stop preaching and teaching the word of God, if we stop being committed to prayer, there's not supposed to be unity. But at this church, we are not perfect in those things. But we are holding fast to the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through him. You see the evidence of the fruit of what God's doing as we've been praying this year. Do you see the candle that's lit? That we praise God that he's at work here doing amazing things. In the hallways of this church, in the Bible studies, in the Sunday mornings, God's word is being preached. It's being taught. It's being studied. We've got a women's Bible study getting ready to start up. The book of Matthew, that's all they're doing. Studying the book of Matthew, that's what we're doing. And at this church, we're praying. We're praying for three non-Christian friends and family members. We've got a prayer garden to help us in that time of prayer. We've taken time throughout the year to set aside specific times to be fasting and to be praying and to be giving and doing those kinds of things. But the problem is, it's too easy to allow other things like preferences in worship or programming or personnel, grumbling and complaining, rumors and gossip. It's too easy. It's the human thing to do to let that seep into who we are. And God's very clear in 1 Corinthians 3. Speaking about the unity of the church, he says this. Anybody who destroys my church, I will destroy. He doesn't want there to be disunity. He doesn't want factions. He wants us to be one. 
And his prayer for us today is that as we exist in the city of Grand Rapids, he wants us to continue this great tradition that Calvary has of making him known in the city and around the world. He wants us to continue to be one, to be committed to that message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, to produce the fruit that does go with dependence upon him, to be committed to his word, to, to be prayerful. And as we do that, Jesus is saying, continue in kindness. Continue thinking not so much about yourself, but about others. Don't come to church and think, what do I get out of this? Come here and think, how can I serve others? How can I give to others? How can I meet others' needs? That Jesus is praying that we not be part of Calvary Church and think, how can I have everything be exactly the way I want it to be? See, Christ is not known in the world through that kind of attitude. When we come and we say, how can Christ be lifted up? What's in his best interest? Then he's proclaimed to the world. And that's what Jesus is praying for us this morning. He's praying that the witness that he has in and through Calvary Church might continue. Because as we are one, then the world can see that Jesus has been sent by the Father and they will believe.